Romans 2, verse 3. <clears throat> I always think whenever Zach gets up and reads those Valley of Visions, just how much different they thought than we think now, right? Those men were... And they were their prayers. That's what the, the Valley of Vision is. It's Puritan prayers. Um, but they kind of put themselves on blast. They, they spoke about how horrible they've been and, and how glorious God is. And if we had to get our minds more into doing that, we would be a lot more gracious. And as we'll see in the, the text we've been seeing, that we'd be a lot less judgmental on what other people do. Um, and I, w I also wonder if they have an ESV version of the Valley of Vision because Jason couldn't understand a thing in it. It's very descriptive. Yeah. Whenever I read it to, to the family, I always speak in plain English. Like, yeah. I don't read it. Yeah. In the and I change it too. Yeah. I change it to us and them and me and you. And Jeremy emphasizes the vowels. Of course he does. Because he's still living in ancient times. <laughs> 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 That's all right. <laughs> all right, let's get into our text. Romans 2, verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God, before we jump right into this text, which we always do, we get kind of take a step back because even though we go verse by verse and typically one verse at a time, we also don't want to lose the context of what we're, what we're looking at. We don't want to just be in that one little verse and rip it out of context and as though verse 3 in chapter 2 was some different verse that wasn't part of this book. Um, but we must remember that this book was written by Paul to these Christian Romans. It was written to the Christian Romans here who were living in a pagan society. And if you remember, Paul deals with some with that, um, with the Gentiles in Romans 1. He describes the Gentiles. I remember when we talked about how it was it, part of the judgment of God in chapter 1 was men with men and women with women. And that was because that was so prevalent in the Roman culture. Remember when we, we looked at that, we, the question we I thought was, why would you start there, Paul? And of all the sins you could have named, why would you start there? And that's why, because it was, that sin was so prevalent in the Roman culture. But Paul doesn't stop there. He starts there with men with men and women with women. But he goes, remember we, we talked about that downward spiral of humanity. And he goes through a whole list of sins. And then he gets to the very, very bottom of the pit. And it was those that not only did those sins, but also enjoyed the fact that other people did it. So they did not only rebel against God, they loved the fact that you rebel against God, which is the very bottom of the pit. And then we see this, this change in thought from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And I mean, you mentioned it the other week. Like, some people don't think this was the Jews that this is talking about in chapter 2. But we see this transition of thought 
from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and I believe it's the Jews. He goes from the Gentile in Romans 1 right into the Jew in Romans 2. And that's what we're dealing with here. And this Jew, it says in verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. There's no excuse. Because you're judging somebody else, but you're doing the same things that they're doing. Yet you're judging them. You're saying this person is wrong. And remember I mentioned, um, and it was, it was more of a thought from Martin Lloyd-Jones, was that it's almost as if between chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul could hear the Jew going, Amen, Paul. Those Gentiles are horrible. And then Paul transitions and says, But you are inexcusable. Because you're judging them, yet you're doing the very same thing. And then we go through and we see verse 2, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Remember we mentioned that it wasn't, God doesn't have a kangaroo court. Every sin is justly paid for. God, when God judges, He judges righteously. And He judges justly. And if you remember, we, we looked at all judgment was given to the Son. So it's the Son doing the judging. That's what, that's what Jesus said. All judgment is given to me. And then we get to this verse here. And thinks thou this, O man, that judges them which do such things and doest the same? What's he doing? He's pointing right back to Rome, verse 1. The old man in verse 1 is the same old man in verse 3. You're judging somebody, but you're doing the same thing. Do you think if you sit there and judge somebody and are doing the same thing, you will escape the judgment of God? That's a rhetorical question, right? Paul knows the answer to that. It wasn't a, it wasn't a legit question that, that he thought that, they, thought that they would escape the judgment of God. He knows the answer. But why did Paul asked that rhetorical question. It was to prove a point. The point being that no one can escape the judgment of God. Not the man in chapter 1 who is called a barbarian, but yet knows the Creator God and knows He has sinned against him. Not the man here in chapter 2 who thinks that they are righteous, yet practice the same thing as those in chapter 1 and judges them. Not you, not me, no one will escape the judgment of God. Remember, Paul goes in our context here from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, dealing with the sinfulness of man. And he starts with the Gentile, and he goes to the Jew, and he proves over and over and over again that nobody is, will have an excuse. Every mouth will be stopped. Paul goes through great lengths in this. And he covers every single angle. There's not an angle. There's not, and that's how when we get to Romans chapter 3, and he says, there's none righteous. And then, then it's almost like the one person says, but what about, and he said, no, not one. But what about so-and-so? No, not one. Not one is righteous. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all, like sheep, gone astray. But like I said, Paul is dealing with all the different angles of sinfulness in man. But here in this, where we're at right now, he's dealing with the, what I would like to call the whited sepulchers, the whited tombs, the, the beautiful tombs 
the beautiful caskets. That's what we have today still too, right? We have these nice, beautiful caskets. Yet inside those caskets are, as Jesus said, dead men's bones. And that's what we're dealing with here. This person who acts as though they are righteous, acts as though they are holy, acts as though they are clean, yet inside they're full of dead men's bones. They're full of death. They get praise of men for being good, yet they're evil in the sight of God. Remember, God sees the heart, and their hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We men like to see people's beauty or confidence or charisma, but God looks on the heart. Oh, it's right here. Listen to this. I listened to this old sermon, probably 20 years old. It was from one uh, a MacArthur thing. It wasn't MacArthur. I don't know who the preacher was, but he read this resume. And as I was going through this, it reminded me of the resume. So I went ahead and printed the resume out um, so I could read it. Now, this says, from Jordan Management Consultants. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests and have not only run the results through the, our computers, but also arranged personal interviews with each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of the tests are included and you will, you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor, auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff co consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not want they do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas dis demonstrates a questionable, questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. On the, one of the candidates, however, showed great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. That's exactly what it would look like if the world picked the 12 disciples, right? They would... Cast aside the ones that Christ picked. And they would take Judas and put him there. They would cast aside Jesus and bring Barnabas. Not Barnabas. Barabbas. Barabbas. I want, my mind went there. 
Not Barnabas. Barnabas was wicked too. He's a man of like passions like us, but... <laughs> um, but that's what the world would do. Because what does the world look like? Look at, they look at the exterior, but God looks at the heart. Now I know that's not an exegesis of the text. I just wanted to, it kind of showed us how the world would choose its leaders. We look on those things which can benefit, benefit us in the temporal, not in the eternal. There's a clear picture of this in Israel picking Saul as their king. king than God picking David as their king. When they picked Saul, he was ahead. He was, he was beautiful. He was charismatic. And he, was, he stood, he was tall, if you will, tall, dark, and handsome. That's the guy we want right there. But God looked upon the heart. We just, we just judge the temporal, and God judges the eternal. So to our text here, this man who deceives other men into thinking they are righteous cannot deceive God, though. You may be able to deceive others with your exterior, but you do not deceive God. God looks upon the heart. That's what this verse is about. That is the gist of this verse. It's this man or woman who prances around as though they are holy before men cannot escape the judgment of God. No matter how holy they look on the outside, they cannot escape the judgment of God. Remember, Jesus said that they have their reward. Those that, that want to pray out loud, those that when they fast, they, 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 they want everybody to know that when they give, they want everybody to notice. They have their reward. And that's here. Their reward is here. That's great hypocrisy too, right? This is the hypocrisy that leads to hell. This is the hypocrisy that leads to the judgment of God. And this is where Paul has led this righteous man who judges and does the same thing. Right to the judgment of God. I have a little side note on here. We may be surprised when we get to heaven and we see the people see certain people aren't there. Those certain people that we thought were they're definitely a follower of Christ. They did everything. They they did way more than me. Yet what does Jesus say in Matthew 7? Many works we've done in your name. We also, I think will be surprised when we get to heaven and there's people there that we thought shouldn't have been there. I think that's going to be greater than the other side. Why? Because we judge like this guy in chapter 2. We look at somebody's outward actions and all of a sudden they're an unbeliever. But they trust Christ. You think anybody thought the thief on the cross would be in heaven? Imagine if you stepped into heaven on that day and you see Adolf Hitler there praising God. You see Saddam Hussein there praising God. Now, I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying how our thoughts work. Nebuchadnezzar, that's a good example. I guarantee when people looked at Nebuchadnezzar, they're like, that's the most wicked man on earth. I believe Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. 
He preached a far more better message on the sovereignty of God than most of the stuff you can watch on YouTube today. Outward appearance means nothing. And Jesus taught this. It's what comes out of the man that defiles the man, right? Jesus said, For from within proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murder. And all, all of these things come from within the man and defile the man. In other words, work on your inner man. Not just polishing up a tomb. This man or woman is the man, obviously, in the text, but it could be a woman that, that sits there and judges others, yes, does the same thing. They act as though they're righteous before God, but they are guilty of the very same things that the Gentiles were in chapter 1. And they are actually guilty of more. How are they guilty of more? Well, first, they're judging the person in chapter 1 for doing the very sins that they know are wrong to do, and they're doing them. They're judging them for doing them. They're doing them themselves, and they have the law of God. They are held more accountable. They know even better than the Gentiles to not do what they were doing. And knowing all this, could they think they would escape the judgment of God? They know better. They know what's coming, and they still do what they want to do. So let this serve as a warning to us. The rest of it is actually going to be application. I sent out a text. Nobody responded. I don't think anybody knew what I was talking about. The man that was, uh, Paul preached a long time, and he fell asleep and fell out the window and died. <laughs> I said, my, my, you don't have to worry about that tonight. I know it's an evening, and I know I don't want to stand up here all night and somebody fall out and <laughs> fall out and die. But this going into the application, do you think we here in America that have been given everything this world could offer will be less accountable than this Jew here in the first century? Absolutely not, right? The standard has risen over and over and over, over every generation to where we are the most accountable so far. We have more than every single generation did before us. Going all the way back to, to Adam, we have more than everybody. And it seems like we have more, but we do less. That's what I'm saying about those Puritans. The Puritans had a, the, the scriptures. They may have had a few books here and there. They didn't have, we just moved, and I've seen how many books I have. Um, they had nothing close to that. And not only that, I can, I, I say this, I've said this a few weeks ago too, but I can pick up my cell phone and how many books? We have the most light out of all, every single generation that's been on earth, we have the most light. We have 2,000 years of church history, of church teaching, 2,000 years of it, and we have the completed canon. Remember when Paul was writing to the Romans here? They didn't have the completed canon. They didn't. They had the Old Testament. We have theologian after theologian that spends his life interpreting the Word of God and writing it for us. 
We have more books than we could ever read. We have commentaries on every single verse in the Bible. There's not a verse in the Bible you can go to and think, I have no clue what that means. Because you can look up John Gill, look up John Calvin, look up Matthew Henry. They will at least give you some kind of idea. And I'm not saying those men are flawless in their interpretation, but if you start looking at a few of them and all of them are in agreement, maybe you should be in agreement. I do trust all of us here know Christ. But if we don't, do you think we'll, you'll escape the judgment of God? Do you think God will just look past you because your family member was a believer? Do you think the one with the eyes as a flame of fire won't see your sins? And crush you on that great and dreadful day? Do you think the father would crush his son and then look past your sins? Absolutely not. The God we serve is a holy God and a just God. He punishes every single sin that every single person commits. Do you think about that? We don't even recognize every single sin that I commit. Yet God will not allow one single sin to go unpunished. Not one. However, as I mentioned last week, this judgment of God will take place in one of two ways. One, as an unbeliever, you will be crushed in hell day and night and not have one second of relief. Not for one second. God will crush and pour out His wrath nonstop, every single second, forever. It says the smoke of their torment rises day and night, forever and ever. God is long-suffering, but when that time has ended, He will not relent for one second. That should terrify us absolutely terrify us that and and as a believer I know I don't have to worry about that but I know I stand right next to people that God will at one day say they're done and crush them nonstop forever every single second and there will be not a not even an ounce of mercy given to them at that point or you have the second option and that's to look to Jesus Christ who was crushed in place of sinners. He had the wrath of all, the Almighty poured upon Him in place of sinners. That crushing that, the, that God will do to those in hell, He did to His Son on the cross. That eternal judgment that we deserve was placed on the eternal Son and He was crushed in place of sinners. The sins of God's people were placed on Him and He was wounded for our transgressions and He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes we are healed. Do we get that? Do we really get that? When, when we think about the unbeliever that we're standing next to or that we're, we're texting or calling or 
our family members, our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers? Do we get that? That they shall not escape the judgment of God. And just as these Romans had the law, we do too. And we have the gospel. How does God save people? By the preaching of the gospel. We need to let that sink in on a daily basis. And we need to look to Him as well. And we need to rest in the gospel. I have escaped the judgment of God because God placed that judgment upon His Son in my place. But your family member may not have, and they need the gospel. Amen.